Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. But what they want more than anything else is just the for the fear to go away. What they want is a work permit. What they want is to be able to get a driver's license. What they want is to be able to integrate themselves in, in, in a normal way into U.S. society. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio. It's been just about a year since the presidential election of 2016 and the night the world turned upside down and inside out. Polls showed Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton was going to win by a solid margin. But by the end of the night, the networks were declaring Donald Trump the president of the United States. Today, it was reported that one of Trump's campaign advisors, George Papadopoulos, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with a Russian professor with ties to the Russian government. And this morning, Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chairperson, turned himself into the FBI in Washington on federal charges that he illegally laundered more than $18 million with tax evasion and with submitting false statements. The most serious charge of money laundering carries a possible prison sentence of up to 20 years. But that doesn't change the fact that President Trump remains in office. And while there, he has the power to enforce what he promised in his campaign to rid the United States of undocumented immigrants. Throughout 2016, while campaigning for president, Trump threatened to put an end to the Obama administration's DACA program or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The 2012 program offered undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children a chance to defer deportation. Then on September 5th, 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the Justice Department was, in fact, going to end the DACA program, but would give Congress six months to try and save the policy. Sessions also announced the Trump administration would not accept any new DACA applications, but would allow those already in the DACA program to apply for a two-year renewal if they applied by October 5th. Unless Congress acts to save the DACA program, the last permit will expire on March 5th, 2020. Last time on Life of the Law, we republished an episode from January 2016, the story of Luis Morales, a young man in Texas who came to the U.S. as a child and had been denied DACA protection as an adult. He filed an appeal. In our update, we asked his immigration attorney, Jose Chitavella, for an update about his life today. If you haven't heard our story, Life Undocumented, we hope you'll take time to listen to it. You can find it on iTunes or on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. I'd like to welcome Jose Chitovella, who's joining us from the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Chitovella. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us today are our team, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of our advisory board. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Brittany Botorf, attorney and chair of our advisory board. Hi, Nancy. And Tony Gannon, filmmaker and Life of the Law's senior producer. Chito Vela, let's start with you. What's it been like over the past year for Luis and for you as an immigration attorney? Very difficult. The uh, last year has brought a lot of fear, a lot of concern, uh, a lot of uh, stress to my clients' lives. And uh, as an attorney who, who cares about my clients, who advocates for them, who fights for them, the, the fear and the stress, I feel it. And, uh, and it's been difficult. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty understanding what's going on a lot of the clients that i have they are hard working many many of them work in the construction industry and and i know recently with the hurricane harvey in houston and and kind of the enhanced uh, enforcement that we've been seeing from immigration you know i know some of them they come up to me and they're like who's going to rebuild houston <laughs> they they just don't understand why they the president and the country wants to deport them when they feel like they are contributing, they're working hard, they're doing the type of work that, that no one else is uh, willing to do, at least at the, at the wages that they receive. So what it, what's it like to, to, to work as an immigration attorney representing this population? I've been wondering because you're an attorney and so you have to file motions and appeals and and yet every time you do you're putting their names on documentation that 
is is open to the government. How do you protect their identity and protect them at the same time that you're representing them in court? Well, you really don't in the sense that by the time they come to me, they either have what we have identified as a, uh, some kind of affirmative path toward legal residency or, or citizenship, uh, or they are already in the uh, immigration machine. They are already facing deportation proceedings and they need legal help. So DACA was, was, was one of those strange situations where there were real concerns about this was this was a benefit, but is it worth popping up on the government's radar uh, to get this benefit? And I remember back in 2012 when Obama announced the program sitting down with many clients and they were like, but if I give them my name and address, is the government going to come after me? And I would tell them what the government was telling us at the time, which was that no, that they was, these were going to be kept separate and these were not going to be used for enforcement proceedings and so on and so forth. And now looking back, I just, I never thought that we would come to this point. I never thought that it would get to this point. And uh, we are faced with the possibility of a government now combing through DACA records potentially and going after uh, um, those, uh, my clients, you know, those uh, kids that, that, that came here and that finally have kind of the, the, a shot at, at, at life outside of the shadows. So, uh, so it's been very difficult. But my clients, they're tough. They have faced lots of adversity many times at, in their native countries and a lot of times here in the United States. And they soldier on. They, they hang in there. How many qualified under the DACA program? There are, I want to say at last count, there are around 800,000, 850,000. It was short of a million. When In 2012, when they announced it, there were predictions of between 2 and 3 million people that would have qualified. But uh, I don't believe we ever crossed over a million. I think they have processed about, let's say, 850,000 or so uh, DACA applications. But then there are so many more because you have to be 15 to get DACA. And then there are so many more who are not 15 yet. You know, there's so many more people who are not technically eligible and, and now will never be able to uh, to benefit from it. But, you know, in, in my law firm, actually, we, we employ three DACAs. And, uh, and then we've probably done DACA for, I mean, easily hundreds. And it's been so transformative for those people. They... You know, you take someone who was working off the books, who was working in the shadows, who was doing their best to get by, but then they got DACA, they get a social security number, they get a work permit, they can get a driver's license, and all of a sudden they have a new job, they have a new car, they have opportunities, they they just really become so much more integrated into society that the world opens up to them, and uh, and it's just going to be tragic to see that go away. What what's it like for people like Luis who don't qualify and then they have to live? I mean, what what is that like to live in the shadows? It's a life of just kind of keeping your head down and staying out of trouble. Luis is, I think he's going to be okay. He is doing just that, just keeping quiet, staying out of trouble, just going to work, doing his thing. Uh, and the good thing about Luis is that he he is an American. I mean, he he in culturally, linguistically, he can easily pass for an American, and that's going to help him. That's going to help him stay in the shadows. That's going to help him escape uh, the 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 perception that he may be undocumented. So uh, he's been okay. I I spoke to him recently. He's. Uh, He's painting, actually. He he was working for a while uh, in, in in different types of jobs, but uh, he uh, I think he started his own kind of put together a little painting crew, and he's been doing uh, just house painting and things like that. and And he's hanging in there. He enjoys the time he has with his son, uh, and he just enjoys his life as as much as he possibly can, and just kind of tries to keep his head down and stay out of trouble. Cheeto, this is Tony. Um, I wanted to ask you. So I, how do you, as a, you know, as a, as a practicing lawyer and now uh, running for office, DACA was never seen, uh, it was never meant to be a permanent solution. And I'm just curious how, what you would see as a more permanent solution uh, to, to this problem. 
and Cheeto, I think that's the first time we've announced on the program that you're running for office. So maybe you could tell us also a little bit about your decision to run for office. Sure. Uh, I am, I'm running for a, a state representative in the Texas House of Representatives uh, to represent uh, East Austin, basically East Austin and Maynard and Pflugerville, two kind of suburbs of Austin. Uh, and I worked in the Texas House of Representatives before I, I started my own uh, law practice. I was a general counsel to a state representative for four years, too. And so I've always been interested in public policy. I've always been interested in in politics. But uh, coming out of when I ended that job, I did really want to engage in, 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 in the real practice of law, litigation, getting in the courtroom, real clients, advocacy. And it's been a pleasure. Uh, frustrating, difficult, very emotional, but I've learned so much. I've been able to help so many people. And it's just really been uh, a pleasure. That said, the solutions are really not on the the legal side of things in the sense of, you know, better attorneys or better applications or better anything like that. The solutions are to the immigration problems that we're facing are, are on the public policy side of things. To be honest, I'm still sore about the that 2009 Congress and the fact that we had a Democratic supermajorities in the House and Senate and a Democratic president and we failed to pass the DREAM Act. That's still rubs me the wrong way. There were just so many good people that were hoping that something would happen, and uh, and we failed them. We we had the votes. We should have done it. I, you know, I, I don't know why it didn't happen, but it didn't. Uh, and then in you know 2012 we had the DACA, which was a half measure, uh, which never really gave us what we uh, wanted. But it was at least a start and an important start because my clients, when I think about, okay, well, how, how do we solve this problem? What is the solution? My clients are not particularly interested in, let's say, like legal permanent residency or citizenship. I mean, they, those are goals, but what they want more than anything else is just the for the fear to go away what they want is a work permit what they want is to be able to get a driver's license what they want is to be able to integrate themselves in 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 a normal way into u.s society so that they can live without the fear of constant uh, of deportation at, at at any moment of, of separation from their families uh, so so when i think about that again i know there's huge battles about what are we going to do over the long term? You know, are they going to become residents? Are they going to become citizens? But most of all, they want a work permit, they want a social security number, and they want a driver's license. So I, I see that as kind of the starting point in the discussion. Uh, not so much necessarily the, or I see that as a starting point of, uh, as a solution, not so much kind of the legal residency and citizenship. Those are more longer term questions. I just want to get the fear out from them. I just don't want them to, to the children, the U.S. citizen children in particular, to have that ongoing fear that their parents are going to be taken from them at any moment. It's just so destructive. You know, our, our story, um, of course, uh, reporter Jonathan Hirsch did bring us a story, of course, about DACA. Um, but in a lot of ways, maybe just crucially, this the story also kind of hinges on this a uh, topic of prosecutorial discretion. Um, and I was wondering if there's a way for us to get, kind of wrap our head around how ICE makes those decisions, um, because it just seems so ridiculously unfair, you know, at least for me, trying to speak as objectively as possible, um, to hear that Luis is a father, to, to hear that Luis was, is basically, for all intents and purposes, you know, culturally American, um, and then to have... Uh, this decision come 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 his way. The prosecutorial discretion is now a thing of the past. It uh, has been abolished. Therefore, again, in 2012 timeframe, uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, did announce that they would be evaluating, considering everybody that fell into the the immigration courts, fell into the deport 
interpretation system for prosecutorial discretion. And what we were doing for, for a good amount of time is preparing these kind of packets, you know, for folks that had were tra- picked up with some minor little charge, uh, you know, a, a speeding ticket that, that went to a warrant or, or, you know, some little tiny charge like that, but had, you know, good history in the United States, had U.S. citizens, had all kinds of people advocating for them. We were preparing packets and uh, submitting them to the uh, uh, USIs and Department of Homeland Security and saying, hey, you know, can we get prosecutorial discretion on this case? Can we get, you know, can we just kind of close this? We call it administrative closure in the immigration courts. And they were being pretty good about it. There was also, you know, there was even kind of an appeal mechanism where you could escalate it even all the way up to the the DC uh, DHS. And that was a, uh, it was a stopgap measure, but it was a good measure. And now that is gone and there is no prosecutorial discretion. And the uh, the trial attorneys, which that's what you call the, the immigration USI's prosecutors, basically, we call them trial attorneys in the immigration courts. They have been instructed to basically not agree to anything. They're not agreeing to close any cases. They're not agreeing to any types of discretion. They're basically just fighting, 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 fighting everything. Uh, so there's no middle ground anymore. Uh, there was a tiny bit of middle ground before, but now there's nothing to really kind of plea bargain about. There's no negotiated solution. There's just kind of pin your ears back and fight, fight, fight. How do you fight that? I mean, if they're just set against you, I mean, is there any, what measures are possible now? It's difficult. Uh, the government still has to prove the person is here uh, without permission. Uh, and before... You know, we were looking more to kind of the relief available or to, you know, kind of looking. We would look as immigration attorneys. Sometimes we would look past that part of it. But now we're fighting even that, you know, if they've got evidence and they need to show it. And now I'm going to pick apart that evidence if possible. Um, Another tool that that I have used and and that my uh, my law firm uh, uses is uh, a motion to suppress and looking at the circumstances around the person's detention looking at whether there was a reasonable suspicion to investigate and probable cause to arrest a person for being, you know, allegedly undocumented in the United States. Uh, And then just fighting it on every possible front. Uh, Any kind of benefit uh, that would be available, there's there's different uh, options. Very difficult. There's the most common is something called cancellation of removal. Uh, And that's for someone that has been here for 10 years, has a U.S. citizen child, and has good moral character. If, if you can prove that their deportation would cause uh, uh, hardship, this extreme hardship that, that is ex- that very difficult to prove, uh, you can get a legal permanent residency that way. But that's, those are very difficult cases, and, and you know, maybe a quarter, maybe less uh, than, than that are going to be successful cases. They're very difficult to litigate. They're very expensive because you have to do a lot of uh, prep work, psychological evaluations, medical evaluations. Uh, and, and they're very hard on the clients and, and their families. Uh, and then, of course, the final, uh, kind of the final fight oftentimes is some kind of asylum application where the person is has a genuine fear of returning to their country because of the conditions there, because of whatever reason, we can always uh, uh, raise that issue in uh, in court and uh, litigate that. Though again, these are you know very very difficult cases, and and, and we're going to lose you know eighty percent, you know seventy five percent of those cases. Uh, so a lot of times we find ourselves just really in the in the position of of trying to put off the inevitable, and that being a, a final order of, uh, of removal. Uh, so very, very difficult situation, not a lot of good options for someone that is caught in the immigration system. Cheeto, this is Brittany, and I had a question kind of along those lines about Luis and the fact that he signed a voluntary deportation document, but in fact he couldn't read it because of his sight impairment. And so how is that considered voluntary and is there any way to uh, use that as some way to have been able to change what had happened to him that is really one of the more egregious elements in his case first of all he was DACA he was eligible for DACA and they 
were under instructions, Border Patrol and ICE, to release people that were eligible for DACA, where there were no kind of extenuating circumstances of, you know, criminal or, you know, public safety issues, anything like that. So first thing is that they should have let him go. They should have just noted, you know, his address, so on and so forth. He's prima facie eligible for DACA. We're going to let him go and tell him to apply. Second of all, he was eligible for cancellation of removal. He had been here for 10 years. He had a U.S. citizen child, and uh, he should have been put into potentially immigration proceedings, but allowed to apply for relief. And that would have been cancellation of removal. He, that was not done either. What did happen was he was taken to a, uh, a, a checkpoint to uh, the border and he was basically forced to sign a document that he could not read. Uh, he thought he was just signing kind of a, a procedural form and that he had to do that in order to be able to use the phone in order to kind of take the next steps in whatever his case was going to be. He had no idea what he was signing. He is legally blind and uh, it's very difficult for him to read. I mean, he can if he can kind of hold up the, a document close enough to his face. But I mean, given the circumstances uh, and the kind of the length and complexity of those documents, he didn't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, and he was forced to sign the document and uh, and then removed. The problem also is that once you have left the United States, all kinds of bars come up, all kinds of, you know, basically you abandon any kind of relief that you would have had here. And to oh, try and, and, and kind of undo that would have been just extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, virtually impossible. I mean, under the case law that existed at that time, it was it wouldn't have been possible. Now things have opened up a tiny, tiny crack, but not much more. Uh, and so what 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 he chose to do and what we chose to do was he presented himself at the border and uh, asked for asylum in the United States because where he was from, uh, there was in that part of Mexico was suffering from a lot of violence, a lot of uh, uh, cartel uh, activity, uh, gunfights in the streets. And he was genuinely afraid and he wanted to return and join his family. And so um, I met him in, in Nuevo Laredo and we walked him uh, across a bridge into the uh, Laredo port of entry. And we uh, presented him to the, uh, the uh, customs officials and we asked for asylum. And uh, that was kind of the start of, uh, of his long fight with the, uh, with the immigration system. And did you get involved after he was deported then? Oh, the irony is just that he had an appointment to see me to discuss DACA when he was stopped. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was going to be, but I want to say it was days after he was stopped. Uh, and then I remember it was, I want to say it was like a Friday because it was, you know, we got a, like a, a phone call late on a Friday regarding him. And his mother, you know, had not been able to communicate with him. She didn't know where he was. Could we help her find him? Something happened. They were driving around the hill country. It's just, you know, high school kids just kind of cruising around, just killing time, having fun, doing nothing illegal, nothing wrong, no drugs, no alcohol, just joyriding. Uh, and, uh, and by the time I was, or I should say we, because his family was looking for him at the same time that, that my, my office was, by the time we were able to locate him, uh, he was uh, already in Mexico. Uh, and that's when we started to formulate kind of another plan. Hi, Cheeto. This is uh, Osagi Obasugi. Um, so one question that I've been thinking about throughout this conversation is, you know, what does this recent decision by the Trump administration mean for the future of immigration enforcement? So you start off your comments by saying that, you know, when DACA was first announced that you had these interesting and long conversations with your clients about whether or not it was a good idea to hand over their personal information to the government out of fear that one day it might be used against them. And lo and behold, that fear is starting to materialize. And so going forward, as we go to future administrations that might come up with new plans for um, attending to this issue around immigration that might include asking people for information, um, it seems like this experience that we're having now might color people's 
understanding of what the future implications might be. And so I guess I'll be interested to hear your thoughts about what you think this is, what these current acts by the Trump administration might mean for future um, plans or policies that might be useful in addressing this issue. That's a very, very good question and a, and a very good point. Uh, sometimes we as, as, as attorneys, you know, we get so bogged down in the kind of day-to-day battles that we face that, that we don't really look at the, the long-term uh, impacts like that. But th- I think there is no question that there is going to be a much greater cynicism, a much greater caution uh, about engaging with the government, about engaging with the system, not just the immigration system, but really the system in any way. We've seen that in, uh, I know that the the police chief in in Houston actually was talking about how there was a drop in uh, in calls, in 911 calls, and that he attributed that to fear of uh, immigrants, particularly immigrant women, of uh, calling the police uh, regarding kind of domestic violence, uh, sexual assaults, those kinds of things like that, because they just don't want to open that door and don't want to see uniformed people in or around their house. So it it, it goes even beyond the immigration system. I, I think there'll be great fear even for, you know, the, the spouses and the, the children and the parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents when you're submitting a a, a petition for that person saying that, you know, I want them to to uh, uh, become legal permanent residents, there's going to be a concern about that. Uh, and then, like I said, that extends to almost every government agency because, you know, we sit here and we maybe understand the distinctions between federal, state, local government, but those distinctions are alien to many of my clients. The government is a government. And, you know, just the local police or the sheriff or the whatever, what's the difference between them and, and the federal government and the immigration system? It's unclear. And if you want to be safe, it's probably better to just avoid any contact. And, and that's just not it's not good for them. And I don't think it's good for our society in general, in terms of, you know, public safety, in terms of public health and in terms of just really rule of law of uh uh you know the farther we drive people underground i think the the more dangerous that becomes uh there's there's just a lot of unforeseen consequences that can arise from that 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 i don't think we've even begun to really think about um as a follow-up to that i'm curious to know how you advise your clients do you what what do you suggest to someone that say is undocumented Stay out of trouble. Uh, despite, I know we've heard a lot of news about ICE raids, and, and, and we had them here in Austin back in, I think, February. Uh, but the vast majority of deportations, the vast majority of people that are in immigration court fighting their deportation get there because they were arrested on some kind of criminal charge. DWI, possession of marijuana, um, little things the vast majority of them are just little things like that and so that's usually the first thing out of my mouth when they're talking about you know we talk about their possibilities we talk about what are their options we talk about different things like that and i just emphasize that if you can avoid arrest you're very very likely to avoid the immigration system as well right and i I just can't emphasize that enough but at the same time if if it's a domestic violence um situation like the one you described, well, the woman or the man, whoever is the person who's you know being a, being treated violently, they don't have a choice. Um, I mean, they they do have a choice. So, how do you and and like Luis, he's he's not doing anything illegal. How would you, how do you advise and you know how would you advise them? A, you encouraged. You know, as an immigration attorney, you felt like it was a safe place in when you first went with DACA um, applications to encourage your clients to apply, because that was a government of 2012. Um, we're now in a government of 2017. So, what? I mean, how how do, how does that work? I mean, how do you, if you have someone who's here undocumented and you feel they have a case? A, for staying, um, do you encourage them to go to court or do you not encourage them to go to court? And if you have someone who's 
playing by the rules. They're not, you know, they're not doing anything illegal. They have no record, no court record of, of ever being involved in anything illegal. H- how do you talk, what do you say to them? And what do you say to women or children who might be in living in a violent situation? I mean, these are these are all like big questions, I understand, but it feels overwhelming a bit. It, it is. Uh, there are not really good answers right now. Thankfully, here in, in, in Travis County, in, in Austin, Texas, our uh, district attorney and, and, and our uh, county attorney, the, the, the prosecutors, uh, have been very uh, sensitive and are trying to do everything they can to uh, not alienate the undocumented population that's here to make sure and communicate that uh, victims are not going to be arrested, that victims are not going to be uh, turned over to immigration. And um, there's another, there's this, uh, uh, an immigration benefit uh, called uh, a U visa. And uh, a U visa is for someone that has been the victim of certain crimes and has uh, cooperated with the police. And if the police will certify that this person was a victim of a certain crime and has cooperated with the police, then we can use that to get uh, them legal status and eventually legal permanent residency in the United States. And that is available here in uh, Travis County and in, uh, in in Austin, Texas. And so people are, are, I think that we've done a relatively good job as a community here locally, making people aware of that. and. I don't think there has been too much of a of a drop in those types of cases, but in many other jurisdictions where, because the U visa is completely discretionary for law enforcement, they can certify or they cannot certify. No one is required to do anything. So in many other jurisdictions, even if you were to report the crime, that that's really not going to help you. That's really not going to get you anything. So there's almost no incentive whatsoever to report the crime. And then, of course, the person that the, the you know abuser, uh, oftentimes victims are very dependent on their abusers. I mean, uh, I, that's a deep and long conversation in and of itself. But uh, there is a real threat to the family, to the wife, to the kids. Uh, as bad as a, a, a husband, a partner can be, uh, life without them might be even worse and might be even more difficult. So folks, especially, like I said, in jurisdictions that are not necessarily as supportive of, of undocumented victims as, as we have been here in, in, in Travis County, it's a horrible choice that they have to make. And then to make it even worse, now we have Senate Bill 4, which was recently passed and recently upheld by the Fifth Circuit, at least in most of its uh, most of the elements of SB4 were upheld, where if police suspect someone of being undocumented, that they are authorized in I mean in some sense you know obligated to investigate further and 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 you know regardless of what the law says. In many jurisdictions, and especially where the uh, elected officials have uh, a very kind of anti-immigrant tone to them, SB4, regardless of what the text of the law says, gives them permission to basically turn people over to immigration. As far as they're concerned, they now have the green light to join with immigration in deporting anyone that they suspect of being uh, undocumented. And uh, and that's causing just all kinds of problems here in Texas and, and has just really taken the fear up to another level in the uh, undocumented community. Cheeto, this is Brittany. And I noticed in the news last week a quite bizarre intersection between the whole immigration controversy and abortion rights there in Texas, um, where an um, undocumented teenager was detained and not allowed to go get her abortion. And then there were uh, court papers filed and eventually she was able, released to to have that abortion. Um, Was that something that played out pretty big there in Texas or or how, what was the reaction to that? It it, it was, um, it, it, it was, I mean, it's just another situation 
to me another situation where immigrants are not given full access to their rights as individuals and too many people now forget or they they choose not to understand that we immigrants do have virtually the same constitutional protections and rights as any other citizens they have the right to free speech they have uh, the right to be free from unreasonable uh, searches and seizures they have all the basic constitutional protections they uh, have all those uh, and that was another case another example in another field where she as uh, a woman uh, has made that decision to terminate her pregnancy she a very reasonable decision under the circumstances i mean she's detained she is seeking asylum in the united states i don't know the details of that case but uh definitely not an ideal situation for having a baby and for you know thinking about your future and uh and the government fought as hard as it could to uh not allow her to uh exercise her rights uh so it it was another uh, uh just another example of uh of the way that people are treated and the and the bigger question though is why was she detained in the first place if she's an asylum seeker that's coming here we have decided that uh we are going to be detaining all of these people that have no criminal history that have no they have done nothing wrong, ha are seeking asylum in the United States as our laws allow, as our international treaty obligations mandate, but we choose to incarcerate them pending the, uh, the, the processing of their asylum claim. And, and that's, I mean, to me, that's the larger question, because if she wasn't detained, she, there's no question that she should have, she could have gone to her doctor and, and, and done whatever she wanted with, you know, her own body, made her own decision. But the fact that the immigration authorities are detaining everyone puts them in these situations where, where we have really complex and, and, and difficult cases and, and, and just heart-wrenching cases, really. Right. I mean, I think the follow-up to that is uh, Rosa, Free Rosa, um, the young girl who has cerebral palsy and as as just looking at that case i'm just really curious about the reach of ice you know what what were the circumstances in which that happened that she was detained oh that just that case just makes me ill uh that case and i'm from laredo which is uh the city where uh where rosa was living and uh you know we're uh, a small community 200 250,000 people and uh, there's a children's hospital in Corpus Christi, which is about 150 miles away from Laredo, that is more advanced, has more advanced medical care. And so oftentimes, people that are uh, unable to be treated or need like specialty treatments go to Corpus Christi, particularly the, the children's hospital that is in Corpus, uh, and seek this kind of treatment. Um, it's not the first time that an undocumented person has requested or sought to cross the border patrol checkpoint. And again, I, I should back up just a second and explain that there's the actual U.S.-Mexico border. But then beyond that, usually about 25 miles or so outside uh, of uh, the border, north of the border, within the United States, there are these border patrol checkpoints, which are kind of a secondary checkpoint where after you go through the U.S.-Mexico border and if you keep going north, you will run into that and it's an, another kind of secondary inspection where they can check your citizenship where they can inspect your vehicle for drugs for alien smuggling for whatever it may be so that was her situation where between laredo and corpus christi they she had to go through one of those checkpoints and uh, when she was going through there the border patrol for whatever reason decided to um to basically take her into custody like i said i don't really know what to say about that there's this idea from you know the the enforcement supporters that that we follow the law blindly like that and and that's just ridiculous i think any attorney i think anybody that knows the law knows that there is great discretion in the legal system about who you prosecute and who you don't uh, and what the circumstances of those prosecutions are and the idea that the border patrol was somehow obligated to take 
her into custody and stand guard by her room and then immediately uh, take her from her family after her medical procedure and put her into basically a refugee home for children. I don't even know what to say about that. It's so inhumane. It's so ridiculous. It's it's really, it's evil. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't have, you know, it's, it's hard to describe because it's just hard to imagine that in our country we would be that that merciless and that horrible. Uh, I mean, you, you think of, or I think of a totalitarian state. You know, I, I think of a, of, a, of, a, of a Cuba, of a Soviet Union, of a North Korea. I, I think of that type of government that would be as heartless and as cruel and as evil as to take an ailing 10-year-old child and put them into deportation proceedings, strip them away from their parents. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say about it. And, and, you know, and the one other thing, though, that comes to mind is as, as incompetent and as, as kind of bumbling as the, uh, as the Trump administration has been in so many areas, they've been just brutally ruthless on the immigration side of things. Uh, just in, in, in many, many ways, they are tightening the screws wherever possible. They are just throwing uh, uh, problems into the system, making it harder for, for you know, legal permanent residents, for, for just, you know, any kind of application that's moving through the system. Everything they have just, in many tiny little ways, which are too long to describe, but if you, you know, talk to immigration attorneys, they are, they're just suffering right now. Uh, everything that they can possibly do to gum up the system, to make it worse, to make it more enforcement-oriented, they've done that without any consideration of the consequences, without any consideration of, of, of mercy, of compassion, anything like that. Uh, it, it's really, it's been a horrible thing to see. Have you seen a definite escalation in the number of, of cases that have come your way uh, since the uh, since the new administration, or is is it or is it just a case of the of the media reporting on it? I, I'm just curious if what you have seen personally and what you've also experienced just in the community. We're starting to see an escalating number. To be honest, right now, my my sense of it is that we're back to the secured communities days in under the Obama administration, the 2011-2012 era when everybody was being put into removal proceedings no matter what. And if I remember correctly, the numbers from the Trump administration in terms of you know detention and deportation are uh, starting to climb up there and match uh, Obama's best efforts back in uh, 2011 and, 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 and 2012. So we're definitely seeing an escalation uh, we're not, I don't think, at record levels yet, but uh, I fear that, that that could be on the way. So, Cheetah, what do you see as the future of immigration enforcement? So, you know, a lot of scholars have talked about the merging of the criminal justice system and immigration system, so they call it crimmigration, and they've talked about how these two fields have started to interact and, and, link, and link up. And on a criminal side, we've seen some common sense efforts to reduce enforcement, both out of humane concerns or, and also out of concerns about the fiscal impact of criminal enforcement. And uh, I guess my question for you is, uh, are you seeing similar types of dynamics on the immigration side? Um, do, or do you think, I mean, you've talked about how um, uh, both the Obama administration and Trump administration have been ratcheting up. Um, I guess my question for you is, do you see um, or do you have any sense of the broader trajectory of immigration enforcement where perhaps there may be some parallel in terms of some uh, awareness of both the fiscal impact of, of these procedures as well as the impact on humanity where perhaps things may go in a, in a more uh, thoughtful uh, and compassionate direction? It, you know, I do criminal defense and immigration, and, and 90% of my uh, criminal defense clients are immigrants, both documented and, and undocumented. On the criminal side of things, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we are seeing people be more thoughtful. We are seeing uh, more humane policies, more people really kind of try to calculate the costs and benefits of criminal enforcement, and oftentimes using prosecutorial discretion, using kind of pretrial diversion programs, using those kinds of mechanisms to let people get out of the convictions that will haunt them for the rest of their life, that will, you know, cause them so many problems. On the immigration side, we are seeing the complete opposite. 
the federal government, you know, with its virtually unlimited budget, I don't think the fiscal implications are just, they're, they're just completely not a concern. The problem to me, and, and I think this goes back decades, uh, you know, I've been practicing law since 2005, uh, but the, to me, immigration policy today is being controlled by the for-profit corporations that uh, contract with the Department of Homeland Security for immigration detention, for all the different kind of detention and supervision services that they run. Uh, and I don't see any interest whatsoever in scaling back uh, any of that. So how do you account for uh, that? Because it seems like there's just this huge conceptual firewall, uh, at least with regards to enforcement, uh, in terms of people understanding that some of the benefits we're starting to see with regards to scaling back uh, criminal, the enforcement of criminal law, um, that those same type of benefits can be seen on the immigration side. But as you're suggesting, that there is just no awareness or interest in thinking about immigration enforcement in that way. Why do you think there is this huge separation between the two? Well, I think any time that we talk about the criminal justice system, and I think you know the immigration system is part of the criminal justice system, we have to talk about race. Uh, and... Go to an immigration detention center, and who's in that immigration detention system? And I think that question almost answers itself. You know, these are people that we don't care about. They're not Americans. They are the other. And the sympathy that so many people now put toward the criminal justice system I think oftentimes happens, I mean, today, when I think about it, when I think of my cases and when I think of what I've seen firsthand, a lot of times, you know, middle class, uh, upper class folks get caught up in the criminal justice system. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, parents of, of children that have drug problems or that have, you know, behavioral problems and all of a sudden getting caught up in the criminal justice system. We're starting to see them advocate and say, hey, my kid has a problem, but it's not a criminal problem. And we're starting to see that criminal justice system respond. We're starting to see the politicians respond to those kinds of concerns. But on the immigration side of things, that that's just, there's a blindness there. Mm-hmm. That That is not affecting middle-class Americans in any significant way. I mean, yes, we can talk about the abstractions about, you know, economic impacts and, you know, who is going to do the, the service industry jobs, the construction jobs that, uh, that the immigrants uh, uh, fulfill. But that sympathy, that compassion, it's just not extended into the immigration system. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, to me, the most obvious answer is there's a, you know, racial discrimination in those kinds of, for the same reason that, you know, we, we, we see people dying overseas and, and, you know, and it just kind of goes in one year and out the other and, and, and it doesn't inspire the same, uh, the same compassion that, that we see when it's a neighbor, when it's someone that looks like us, someone that talks like us, someone that we can relate to. These are people that are just seem to be off the radar for, you know, the majority of, uh, of Americans, sadly. I do want to give everyone here at our in-studio a chance to have final thoughts. Uh, to you know, Is there anything you want to contribute before we uh, close up? Well, I think just to extend what Cheeto was saying at the very end here about this distinction or firewall we have between how we think about criminal justice issues and immigration issues, I think you know, there's a lot of work that went into making sure that we had a broader appreciation about how the kind of unthinking enforcement of criminal law was having this impact on people's lives that has started to bear fruit in terms of thinking differently about mandatory minimums and thinking about how we do that type of work. And I think the next step and the next phase of advocacy and legal work involves we bring um, similar types of social movements to the immigration side so that folks can have a more compassionate understanding of how these uh, laws and enforcement mechanisms are having a tremendous impact on people. And um, I think that's... uh, that's worth it. I'm sure that Cheeto and others like him will be engaged in going forward. But as we think about uh, this, is- this issue and this episode, we should all be-, be mindful of what we can do to make sure that we bring a more compassionate, um, uh, more compassionate thinking um, to this topic. I'd also like to thank Cheeto for making that distinction between the criminal justice system and uh, immigrant detention centers um, and just our sort of attitude toward the undocumented. Um, we live in a world where you know, it's very it's very possible where they where we're eating a meal and a good portion of it pass through their hands, and I and I just uh, you know cons- consider the possibility of thinking about that uh, every now and then. Mm. And this is Brittany, and I will wrap up by saying that I think 
this demonstrates the importance of stories and so that we can get past this otherness and so stories like Luis's and there was a story on the daily um, that profiled a I think it was a man in Texas who owned a pizza parlor and he got caught up in ice and the whole town was outraged even though it was a very red town and they as a rule were pro-immigration enforcement and everything, but when it was this person that they knew who participated in their community went to their church and he was affected, then that did move hearts and minds. And so I think this demonstrates how we have to keep these stories getting out there to the people who otherwise um, tend to think that this doesn't apply to them. It's so funny, though, just with that last comment about the pizza parlor, uh, I just can't tell you how many employers or how many folks that are extremely unsympathetic to immigrants and generally pro-enforcement come into my office and are just like, you know, oh, I, you know, immigrants and destroying our country, except for this person who is just a rock and who just works so hard and is everything and you've got to do something. And then, you know, when I when there's nothing to be done or when it's just they realize how brutal and horrible the system is, they're just, you know... Uh, beside themselves and, and they can't believe this injustice and they can't believe this but uh, but oftentimes that I hope it changes people's views but oftentimes it doesn't you know they, they seem to think that the immigrant that they know and that they think so positively of is the exception when I'm there trying to tell them like this is everybody. I mean, this is the vast majority of immigrants. This is the situation. They, you know, they're somebody's uh, employee. You know, they're somebody's uh, nanny. They're somebody something, and they're so valued, and they're and they're and they're so beloved. Uh, but uh, it's 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 a difficult, very very difficult situation, and 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 sometimes there's just that disconnect that that you just can't bridge that gap. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today from Austin, Texas. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to thank Jose Chidovella for joining us from the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas. You can find more about his campaign for the state legislature in Texas on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. I'd also like to thank our team, Asagio Basagi, Brittany Bottorf, and Tony Gannon. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Tony Gannon, Kirsten Jesuits Heidel, and Rachel Kane will post-produce this episode. Music by Ian Koss. David Alvarez, engineered from the studios of KUT in Austin. Katie McMurrin is our engineer here at KQED in San Francisco. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Next on Life of the Law. To get photo ID, you need photo ID. Why do they make it so hard when you lose everything to get it back? You have any answers to that? That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.